G'day, you're on Community Radio 2XX 98.3 FM. You're listening to Behind the Lines, and this week you're with Scotty. But you're not alone with Scotty. You're also with Callie Brennan and Katie Bates, who are organising the Permaculture Convergence and Festival, respectively, and Danny O'Brien from Canberra City Farm. Yeah, how are you all? Very well this morning. Excellent. Good, thanks, Scotty. Nice, nice. So the permaculture convergence, that sounds like pretty big. It's the Australasian permaculture convergence, isn't it? Let's start with the hardest question of all. What is permaculture? (laughs) (laughs) We knew you were going to ask that one, Scotty. Yeah, it's it's sort of inevitable, isn't it? It is, and it never seems to be an easy answer because it's so many different things for so many different people. But essentially, it's an ethically-based design system for sustainable living and land use. Uh, It functions through mimicking the patterns and relationships we observe in natural ecosystems. And it's fundamentally a process of consciously designing the places we live so that they can be sustainable. Because if we don't consciously do it, we tend to muck things up a little bit. Yes, yes, it might have been done once or twice, yeah. So where does the name spring from? So, so the name, the term permaculture, it was originally developed as a combination of terms of permanent and agriculture, uh, but it's later come to be linked with the idea of permanent culture. So due to the social aspects that's involved and that with the creation and to keep up of the permaculture garden. Um, permaculture was pioneered in Australia. It's one of the great things that Australia's done, and it was done back in the 1970s. And the two people who put, you know, were the pioneers were Bill Mollison and David Holmgren, and they drew on principles of other disciplines, including things like organic agriculture, sustainable forestry, horticulture, agroforestry, which is where that term permanent agriculture came. So it's about making a shift from annual crops that we grow for food to long-lived trees that are going to provide food in the long term. So it's like growing chestnuts instead of wheat. Yeah, right. Well, we'll get on to the difference between chestnuts and wheat and stuff a bit later. Um, But they're they're bigger than you'd imagine. So you said it's an ethically-based sort of um, outfit or an idea, I guess. Uh, What are the ethics that they're using? So there's, there's three core principles that permaculture follows, and that's care for the earth care for people and also fair share and then expanding out from those three core principles we have a whole there's another 12 ethics that we that we follow the first one of those is you know observe and and interact oh hang on you're jumping the gun here <laughs> feel free other others to, to chime in if you if you feel like it um so earth care um aren't we caring for the earth at the moment <laughs> Shall I take that one? <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, unfortunately, we people are rather good at um, putting our own needs ahead of perhaps uh, sort of ecosystems and species. So, as we well know, there are a range of environmental issues that um, are uh, a result of human activities. Uh, perhaps the most well known at the moment is um, global warming, for example, where we're changing the climate of the planet thanks to um, the amount of emissions from fossil fuel use um, primarily. Um, Another one that's perhaps less um, well regarded or realised in the general population is that although we get a lot of attention on um, global warming, 
In terms of absolute change to the um, environment, agriculture has had the single biggest impact in terms of ecosystem change and um, basically changing habitats dramatically. So returning to the concept of earth care um, that permaculture um, uh, seeks to um, put forward, um, the idea is very much what can we do in feeding ourselves that doesn't damage the planet but instead actually regenerates the planet at the same time. So um, we're looking at forms of agriculture where we are not only looking after ourselves but providing habitat for all of our co-beings on this planet. So um, I think that's... (laughs) Yeah, and I think it's also a matter of just having a bit of humility about how our understanding of how the natural ecosystem works and uh, taking more of a precautionary principle in terms of making sure that we are looking after all of the parts of the ecosystem so that it is there for future generations because if we continue our extractive approach to managing the landscape then there will be nothing there for the future generations. Yes, it's often forgotten that we are nature. (laughs) Um, How about people care? I guess that sort of follows on from that little point what do we do i guess what happens to the earth if we're not looking after people well exactly i mean they're one and the same in a sense if you properly look after the earth and and look after all the living things in the earth people are one of those living things so of course you're looking after people but us being human focused social beings it's partly about looking at ways to cherish and nourish other people's whole needs you're not just looking at you know, utilitarian, let's feed everybody, but you might want to um, assist people's um, spiritual and emotional development as well, sense of community, resilience. Um, One of the nice things is if you can underpin all of your design work or any kind of planning that you want to do with the idea that, okay, whatever I do, I have to look after the earth and I have to look after people as my fundamental principles as part of that design, you're doing pretty well and I guess that's where at some point we're in this conversation we might come to the idea that, you know and I'll talk a bit more about how permaculture is more than just agriculture it can actually be a way of approaching any design or planning challenge um, so yes so looking after people um, in the broadest sense and looking after um, all the other species on this planet is I guess fundamental to the way we think um, and I suppose one of the other things that's it's opening your mind to be able to imagine all the different ways that you can have an impact, positively or negatively, on uh, the world around you that's part of um, the thinking that underpins design um, in permaculture. That sounds really quite good. Now, you mentioned it was a, a, a form of design science. Um, what's the significance of design in permaculture? Oh, that's a big, that's a big question there, Scotty. Oh, yeah, you know. <laughs> so... Um, permaculture is um, looking at ways to address the, the, your energy use and the, the energy use in the system that you're providing. I mean, we always talk about food, but there's other things like shelter and water, and we're talking about the, en- the energy use. And so permaculture is designed so that those um, aspects of your design that need the most of your inputs in terms of energy are closest to where you're living or the, the parts that you access the most 
are those bits that require the most energy. And as you move out from that centre of your life, be it your house or being your your own person, um, the energy is dissipated. So you need to put in less less energy to those things. So in terms of design, uh, we always talk about putting in those little herbs for your kitchen, but close by your back door, so that when you, you know, in the middle of making your omelette and you decide, oh, I need some fresh chives, you can quickly duck out, pick the chives and come back. You don't need to trek down to the, the you know, the back fence to pick your chives because, you know, the energy you expend is going, you're going to go, well, I'll make my omelette without the chives. It's not that important. Yeah. And, yeah. and I think the other part there is also looking at the resources required for each of your systems such that you're streaming the, the systems such that an output of one, it might be a waste product of one of those systems becomes an input to another. So looking at when you want to start some sort of enterprise in your garden, we'll call it an enterprise, you need to look at what inputs you need and then to see whether you can get those inputs from one of as outputs of one of your other systems. And a classic example might be using animals, chooks, things like that, to generate some waste, um, to then generate some fertiliser for the rest of your garden or vice versa, using scraps from your garden to feed your chooks. So I guess that's sort of like a bit of a mind trick, really, isn't it? It's like, oh, I've got all this chook poo. God, that stinks. And, and you just change your mind and then, oh, look at all that fertiliser I've got there. And can you do that with anything? Ideally, in a circular economy, you certainly can. Yeah. Um, the whole point with um, any of the way, ways we design is to try as much as possible to give it turn it into a closed loop system so for example with your chickens if we're going to extend that one um what about growing the food for the chickens on your site so for example uh growing um a mulberry tree tagasasti did you know that chickens like jerusalem artichokes too and if you run out of ability to eat your own jerusalem artichokes and i can tell you they're very productive um (laughs) you know and you want to have a rest and give your chickens in you could actually see a system where you grow the fertility that your chickens are eating, then the chickens are converting that into a high-value fertiliser for you. That's then going on to your garden to um, produce food for you. All of your food scraps that you, you know, all the peelings and things that you don't want go back to the chickens. And what you need to do is find out what's that sweet spot where the land can support those living things on it. Yeah, without turning it into a mess a messy pile that's right um, yeah and degrading it so again yeah. that comes back to the original ethos of understanding how your your ecosystem works and understanding where the boundaries are and how you can push it yeah ah, very interesting very interesting and can this um like you're talking about a backyard size i mean yeah. would, would this apply to something a bit bigger like a 500 acre farm i think or? it's a lot easier to do it when you get bigger um because obviously the more land you have the more um able you are to support and go fully self-sufficient or and yeah. produce beyond um, whoever's living on that and, land. And Danny. you look at uh, things like the regenerative agriculture movement that yeah. uh, is really sort of coming into the fore these days. I mean, you wouldn't necessarily say it's it's started in the basis of permaculture, but it's, it's using the same sort of ethos of using animals as tools in the landscape to repair the landscape, understanding the, how the ecosystem works and operating it such that you get productive output of that ecosystem whilst at the same time building natural capital as opposed to degrading the landscape. So yes, you can take it well beyond that. Um, 
and sort of even scaling up your backyard to a slightly bigger area, you might have um, some waste product from from animals and you might then grow um, soldier fly larvae that then become feedstock for your chickens. And there's, there's examples in Canberra where people are taking waste and then growing the, the larvae and then using that as a feed source for, for animals as opposed to... Um, manufacturing growing explicitly growing wheat to then turn into pelletized feed for chickens and pigs and things like that so you can expand it as far as you want really that sounds fairly applicable to a lot of different things uh, scotty i've got a couple more exciting oh, design good, yeah, examples if that's all right it, one of the things that i found after i did my permaculture training was i started looking at the world in a different way and noticed how many times in human society we have designed without taking any account of the natural world around us. So, for example, <coughs> if you see a poor, starving, half-dead tree in the middle of a car park, and the car park is this hard surface that harvests water every time it rains, but all that water has been directed into the storm drain system and bypasses this poor tree's roots. And you know how we grow trees in car parks to provide a bit of shade? And I'm just looking at that, that situation where... Somebody has not thought about just the simplest thing of making sure that when it rains, the water that's landed in the car park can go past the tree's roots first and then the excess can go down the storm drain rather than the situation where somebody's got to come over and actually use energy to hand water this poor little establishing tree because there's this great concrete jungle around it and all this... All this um, Potential free rainwater is uh, is uh, going somewhere else, and um, is uh, it could be a free input into that um, into that growing tree. So that's one that irks me quite a lot. And once I, once you've seen it once, you start seeing it all over the place. And you're like, gosh. And it is a real philosophy of how can I do this simpler? How can I do let nature do this for me rather than me actively having to to take a step or a decision or use my energy or use external energy to actually achieve the same outcome. Another one that's a great example is we in Australia, because we've inherited a British culture primarily, um, we approach gardening as if we still live in Europe yeah. and we don't. And so one of the crazy things that we do is we tend to put our lawns at the lowest level of the garden then have raised garden beds around the lawn. That means that whenever it rains... All the stuff that's on the raised garden bed slowly starts to be pushed down towards the lawn. So you have to do more raking. You have to get out your leaf blower and blow all this stuff. So you've actually created, with your design, you've made it so that you have um, basically built in a requirement for you to do a lot more work to maintain that um, the other thing about raised garden beds is, of course, they dry out. And in case anyone hadn't noticed, Australia is quite hot and dry in summer. And <laughs> unlike I'm from the UK, as you can probably tell from my accent. And over there, you know, having good drainage is quite a, a good thing. But um, over here, I'd say that water conservation is the big thing to do. And so when you have high water needs plants placed in higher ground, which is necessarily drier, you've made yourself have to do more watering than if you did it the other way around and put your um, vegetables, for example, in sunken beds, which is a, something that we're actually doing in our garden at home to test out. And it, it certainly is damper in those areas. Um, 
so those are the kind of things where if you think about it for one of the one of the principles of permaculture is to sit down and observe and if you have the time take a whole year to look at your site um, so that you can really see what happens in it then you're much more aware of um, how nature operates and all the different ways um, things um, happen in your garden over the whole year or your site, whatever it might be. You could positively take advantage of wind. You can take advantage of the orientation of the sun. Danny, I'm going to segue back to you here, has the most amazing house which doesn't need any heating in winter simply because of the way it's been oriented and the fact that it's extremely well insulated. Those are the kind of design decisions we can make to save ourselves so much effort and energy used down the track but we just need to do it at the beginning otherwise we have an enormous task ahead of us to try and retrofit hence the need to spend some time observing to understand how your site behaves before you start doing things it's much easier to to change things around on paper than it is to change things around once you've done them (laughs) totally especially when it comes to buildings and stuff i always like to pull out the example of uh, amory lovins from the, uh, the rocky mountains institute he's got himself a house somewhere up near the arctic circle and he's had i think 32 crops of bananas so far out of it yep. and he doesn't heat it yep. so <laughs> it can be done certainly so we're using design in, in what seems like eminently sensible fashion here um so we're using it as a tool in permaculture but i guess what would you expect to happen if, if that sort of thinking caught on a bit you know and and maybe design and looking at things in a design fashion as you see once you see it you can't really unsee it um if that caught on and sort of became an institution in society what sort of changes do you reckon might might ensue well you're starting to see that already you look at the the recent or the current discussion around waste and our recycling not being able to be exported to china and things like that and one of the big um talking points that that's finally happening here is around closed loop systems again it's the closed loop system that if we don't create uses and demand for the the for the recycled product then there is no way that we can have that cycle so people are starting to think about how to start to close those loops and actively making decisions around um the the use of the 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 waste products such that we can continue to do what we're doing because otherwise we are just going to fill up our our landfills so i think it is starting to there are pockets of it creeping into just general thought processes and and social design but uh, there's a ways to go yeah right can you can you guys think of any any good ways we could sort of get towards that maybe hmm Oh, well, we'll have to work on that one. It's it's not something that you can legislate, right? It is something that people... There's got to be a motivation for people to do it. Um, and there's got to be... I mean, it, it is... First of all, there's education around it is the right thing to do. And then there's motivation. People are, are, are quite often motivated by self-interest. So you've just got to work out how it is in their self-interest to um, support those sort of activities. And awareness is is a big part of it. I think also, I mean, culture does change. And when we're stuck in the here and now, it often seems like it never changes fast enough if you're trying to pursue a particular goal. However, if we look back, you know, it's, wow, I mean, only 70 years ago, it was the 1950s, and that was a very scary place, certainly from a women's rights point of view. So um, 
we have to remember that things are changing all the time. Recycling in the 70s, my mum did it way back when and people thought she was a freak and now it's normal. So I think what's happening is all the time um, culture does change. We are increasingly concerned about the environment. Climate change is real and people are worried about it. I think that what will happen is that over time, when we show that there are ways to live that are much less impactful on the environment or save us effort, so let's say we have a brilliantly designed house or garden, I don't have to do as much effort to make that thing. You know, it might take a bit of effort to establish the garden or the house or whatever in the first place, but after that, the energy inputs are much lower than in a standard, um, regular, normally designed, if I can say normally, but, you know, traditionally designed, um, um, say, suburb or house or, or farm. So I've got more time to do other stuff I want to enjoy. And so after a while, people are going to start spotting that some of us have, you know, <laughs> having quite a good time. And I think that's the, cru- the crux of the issue is that it's not just that it's the right thing to do, but it's actually fun and it's cool. And I suspect that in another 20 years time, a lot of this will just be the next generation coming. I'll be like, oh, yeah, of course. Why didn't we do that always? It's obvious that that's the thing to do. And not only that, it gives me a good quality of life. I've got, you know, access to great locally produced food. I don't have to heat my house in winter. Woohoo, I save lots of money. In fact, my house is comfortable and I don't get sick. I don't have mold on the walls. There's a whole range of things. Or maybe I only need to walk to work. I don't have to, you know, um, there's less uh, congestion. You could have a whole system, a whole town built along these principles, a whole cities. What we're having to do now, of course, is retrofit some quite poor design choices that have been made over the last I guess 50 to 100 years and see what we can do in a in a sort of retrofitting and renovation sense I suppose that's quite a good segue into David's new book about retro suburbia isn't it (laughs) (laughs) very nicely done well what's that so uh, maybe so, Katie, do you want so to talk? D- David, David Holmgren, who was the co-originator of Permaculture, has uh, just re- written and released a new book called Retro Suburbia. And it's about, as Kelly mentioned, retrofitting suburbia because it's you know people are living in towns. People are not living in the country anymore. There are more people living in cities and urban environments than ever before. And so... And people obviously like living in those urban uh, locations because they've got access to facilities and friends. And there's a lot of uh, ways that you can reduce your energy by living in towns and urban areas. Uh, Transportation is just one of those. Um, But there's other things that you can do in urban areas. And David's book is about how you can, um, I guess, enhance your experience of living in in the urban areas you can trade vegetables with your neighbors you can have you know there's people in melbourne who have a a community goat that they all take turns at eating there are each backyards and they you know while while they've got the goat they get to milk the goat they get to make take the benefits of the milk that the goat gives so you know it's about putting you know putting your resources together so that you can all share and enjoy. And I guess it's essentially about sharing uh, the resources 
that that we have. And that then that then builds resilience in the organisation. Everybody's working together and cooperating, and it reduces stress and dependence on one person. If you want to, everybody was running their own goat, then somebody wants to go away on a holiday, everybody else has to look after their goat. Whereas if you're sharing, it just it just helps the, the the resilience of that system. Absolutely. There was a share sheep up in uh, Hackett, I think, for quite a while there, but uh, I don't think it was capable of giving anyone any milk. Uh, <laughs> you just the, need the, small hands. Well, that was the wrong sort of sheep. Yeah. <laughs> but that's interesting. There's also a, um, a talk coming up on the 10th of April, Activating the Urban Commons, How Do We Make Canberra a Sharing City, which sort of fits in really well with that by Darren Sharp from Shareables coming down to have a bit of a yarn with, um, I think Edwina's going to be in there from Sea Change and Meg from the Lynham Commons. And anyway, there's a bunch of people who's going to be talking about that, uh, which is on at the uh, the Food Co-op on the 10th of April. Um, now, who does permaculture apply to? Is it just a middle-class white thing again that we sit around yarbering about in community radio studios? Or or is it, you know, can it apply to other cultures? And I mean, there's a lot of people who could really use this sort of design thinking. The, I mean, the concept of permaculture has gone worldwide and, and it applies to across the board in terms of people, you know, people who live in urban, you know, middle-class uh, lives to, you know, surprisingly probably those people who have, you know, subsistence farming uh, lifestyles in what would be, you know, poorer countries actually probably practising permaculture without using the word permaculture because they're still using closed-use loop system. They're using their animals to till their land. They're saving their seeds and, re, you know, to, to, re, to replant. It's just that they don't call it permaculture. <laughs> Yeah, and they, they don't necessarily have the wealth to be able to make those other decisions that some of us might make to just go and buy some food rather than grow some food and, and put some effort into the design. So they're probably more highly motivated to do that. But, yeah, I'd agree that they a lot of this thinking is are things that have just come out of observing how people have done things in the past or currently do things. Um, it's it's just formalising it into a, design, a set of design principles. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. There's two things there that... Um permaculture many of the techniques and uh, that you can see in um, books by Bill Mollison um, are very much based on indigenous land management practices from around the world um, many very human scale because basically part of the the development of permaculture was Bill cataloging and realizing there was this enormous knowledge out there already from people who lived sustainably on this planet up until only a few generations ago. Um, so let's take all of that knowledge all around. So that's one side of things, which, of course, is that the techniques in permaculture are all very much applicable to human scale, appropriate technology, um, using the resources that you have at hand. You don't need a big digger. You can have some people in spades. Um, the second thing I wanted to say was about um, permaculture in urban areas. A lot of the uh, community initiatives, community farms, um, community gardens tend to be um, um, uh, initiatives that um, 
have had a very big impact and sometimes particularly an impact on some of the most disadvantaged and dispossessed people within our own societies. So, for example, there's the Fitzroy Community Gardens in Melbourne and um, one of our speakers at the Convergence, the upcoming Permaculture Convergence, is a woman called Mariam Issa, who's a um, refugee advocate and uh, um, women's activist who... Um, has had some involvement with that project, among other things. And so I think um, a lot of the time, the kind of um, society, social resilience building that you see when people establish community gardens um, and initiatives like that, which I suppose falls under the broad umbrella of things that you can do as part of permaculture, um, are extremely good for um, people who often are on the margins of society. And another of the key permaculture principles that we work on is is one called um, value the marginal, use edges and value the marginal. That is that people on the edge, things on the edge, the edges of the, between ecosystems and people and uh, marginal species, people on the margins. It's all about diversity. It's all about taking into account many different voices and many different ways of being because the more you have that into your um, community the more you um, strengthen the community by having a diversity of perspectives or in an uh, in a growing community a diversity of functions so um, I suppose I'm, I feel like I'm covering way too much ground in only a few sentences there but um, that's I guess the key point there is that very much we don't want permaculture to be seen as a middle-class activity sure you can go out and buy your 300 dollars veggie pod which is already a pre-made wicking system that's great but you can do something with a broccoli box that you got for free from the markets and some chicken poo <laughs> and you will have the same effect yeah. <laughs> and the same results yeah and i guess fair share really also is that that last permaculture the ethic which is, is yeah it's supporting those on the margins to uh be able to support themselves, I guess. Um, I mean, around the world, as you go around the world, you'll see there's tons of places where, um, I guess, empirical forces have colonised people and basically stuffed them and mm. they're left sort of as this sort of excess workforce that they can use if they choose. And, um, yeah, how can how can permaculture sort of help with, with countering the effects of, of, of this this horrible poverty that you've got all over the place. I mean, here it's in the Indigenous community and in the States it's their Indigenous community as well. It's even in the first world countries where we've got this underclass of people who just got completely ruined by this whole exercise and that's whole countries as well now. Is it is it working to help those people, like the most downtrodden? I think it can do and um, I'm not personally familiar with enough projects around the world to be able to speak at any length but I do know that um, after the financial crisis in the US where a lot of people's houses you know the, the, all these the mortgage the giant mortgage default um, there are some people who've taken over those unused gardens and started to produce um, and build communities around grassroots um, I guess self-empowerment um, types of activities where they say okay well you know this is a vacant house and garden I'm going to grow lots of stuff in here and then start sharing around that community um, and old disused factories there's some amazing examples that Jeff Lawton um, another big permaculture name who's uh, been spreading the word in the US quite a lot he's got some amazing examples of um, you know old 
basically ruined factories being turned into all sorts of new um, uh, ways to um, uh, employ people and have you know much more sustainable business focus um, in terms of people who feel who are very much on the margins I think there is an opportunity for people who may have not had many mainstream economic skills to be um, to grow and develop through um, gardening initiatives if that's what they want to do um, and I think that there's a huge mental health benefit for people with mental health issues in and again coming back to those community garden things I think when we're talking about indigenous um, initiatives it's very much you want to do things in partnership and not impose a particular way of being otherwise you just end up back in the kind of neo-colonial horrible <laughs> situation so i'd be hesitant to say permaculture is the answer but rather what you're doing because permaculture isn't one thing it's more okay i care about the earth i care about people how can i help using that underlying ethical principle and it's then about working with communities whatever the community might be um, and w wherever they may be about what they want to do and it's about empowering those people to choose the solutions for themselves um, and I, I think there's also there's one other area um, Rosemary Morrow who's another big name in permaculture is doing a lot of work on humanitarian aid situations working with refugees in lots of war-torn countries and looking at ways permaculture can help empower those people as you know very excitingly she's coming to the permaculture convergence as well um so i'm gonna go and sit at her feet and worship her for a little while um, <laughs> yeah there was a film about her wasn't there the garden at the end of the world was i it? haven't seen it myself but, oh, yeah. don't quote me on that it's definitely got garden in it <laughs> <laughs> so, so i mean in terms of take uh, taking permaculture to other places there's there's the perma fund which is a place where people can donate money and they take put that money together and then they uh, provide grants to projects that are around the world to help them build their own capacity and their own their own communities um, and I know that I think Perma Fund has funded projects that have you know in terms of building permaculture in Fiji and other other locations so that's another way that if you're wanting to get involved you can donate it to that it's tax deductible but you know it helps fund it provides money to those poorer countries that might not necessarily have the financial wealth to be able to you know invest in larger structures or you know to just purchase the land so that people can start you know growing their, growing their own food yeah, yeah, right. Land can be very expensive. It could certainly come in handy, I reckon, if you had no money. Because, yeah, you're right, it's a bit difficult to operate without anything. Now, I guess um, going back to the, uh, the the poorest of the poor, there's, there's billions of people out there in this situation, and, and we're a bunch of rich people sitting in a rich country, and, of course, everyone wants to be rich, and, and we've only got this one planet, and there's this problem of... What's going to happen if everybody manages to get their, their standard of living anywhere near ours? Is permaculture perhaps a short circuit for that? What sort of standard of living can you have just by using permaculture? Nice one. Can, did, do you want to say something, Katie? <laughs> I was going to say, it, permaculture, you know, it's the, what the, the, one of the, the principles is fair share, which means at some point not everybody's going to be able to have this a high, a high income you need to be able to share it so that everybody is at a more even 
level. Um, and that's part, you know, in David's book, he talks about retro, in retrofitting suburbia, one of the things is about giving, having a gift economy rather than a financial uh, economic economy where you go back to, you know, you make those presents to give to people for Christmas and for birthdays. And I think you need to sort of, people need to change the way they think in terms of having to have the biggest, the best, the most expensive. It's about having something that's perhaps lowering people's expectations. Uh, you know, if there was 7 billion people in the world living like us, rich Western nations, there, you know, will have used up, you know, multiple earth resources in a very short period of time. You know, we can't survive on it. Yes, we're overgrazing already, aren't we? We are. I was going to say that... Is, brings us back a bit to the culture change that I was mentioning earlier. Um, it doesn't necessarily have to be that we... I, the challenge we have is that we as a culture, anybody who's got something doesn't like giving it up. And so it's very hard for people to go, oh, no, I'm going to do less. And actually a lot of the uh, rhetoric around efficiency can sometimes have that kind of loss associated with it. And people don't like that very much. And I think... What we do is we look at changing um, and providing um, examples where people are living really well on a much lower ecological footprint than they need than than currently. So yes, my energy needs don't need to be as high. If I happen to live in, you can you can build yourself a house that requires no energy to heat. Now that already gives me I'm using way less resources if I can do that. I can have a really high-end expensive house that uses no energy or I could have a straw bale house that I made with my hands and some recycled windows and I will still not necessarily, you know, need to use any energy to heat the thing. So there are ways to do it. Um but the key thing about it is that we need to be showing people that it's fun and it's enjoyable and it's actually an abundant lifestyle we're talking about. We're not saying you have to have less so much as what we're saying is we don't want you to have to expend enormous amounts of resources through a very inefficient system to get a piece of crappy plastic that you're going to throw away in, you know, three days' time. If I can tell you that I'm having a meaningful and enjoyable life where I feel rich but I'm using a fraction of the resources of somebody next door, then that's going to catch on because people are going to be like, hey, hang on a minute, she's doing You seem something. to be happy. She, yeah, exactly, <laughs> and that's the thing. So there's another book that I think is also produced by Meliodora Publishing, which is David Holmgren's publishing house, um, called The Art of Frugal Hedonism, which is very much about pointing out that, you know, you can have great fun without necessarily having crap loads of money. Am I allowed to say a word like that on radio? <laughs> oh, you're out. You're out. Yeah, um, yeah right. On, and I guess, is, is that one of these sort of mind tricks that we, we were looking at before? Because currently, I guess, society is designed really, really well to turn sort of physical wealth and the things we actually need into financial wealth, which is just an imaginary sort of idea, really. But it's sort of how the world runs at the moment. Come on. How are we going to get that mind flip so that most people go, oh, no, hang on, I actually need to eat. <laughs> you make it cool. And, yeah. and you, you, you give them the experiences. I had an interesting experience recently where my, uh, my nephew and niece came up to visit us and we'd, we lived in Melbourne and we lived the big exorbitant uh, corporate lifestyle and then we realised uh, 
what we ne- actually needed to do. So we cha- totally changed what we were doing and where we were doing it. And um, Ethan, we went down to the garden and he was looking through the garden. And he said, you know, Danny, when you first left Melbourne, I was really upset and I didn't understand why you were leaving us behind and leaving what you've got behind. But now, and he's a 15-year-old, he was walking through the garden that he'd helped pull the garlic from during the day and he said, I totally get it. I know why you've done it. And giving them the experience to be part of that and eating the food that's coming out of that beautiful garden and the tomatoes that are just to die for and everything, they just start to experience what it's about and how enjoyable it can be to participate with others doing that. And I think the bit is if you were out there slogging away doing it on your own, that's hard yards. But if you're doing it with other people and you're getting the social benefit as well as the 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 exercise and the the food, then there's a lot of motivation. So it's it's about providing people with opportunity to experience it. And it's not to say that it's not hard work. Right? You'd go and try and broad fork 20 metre beds, right? You've got to work hard, but that's not a bad thing. True. Keep no, you don't need to go to the yeah. gym. Just- <laughs> my, wife, my wife was telling me a story about her, uh, one of our other nieces, and she's in primary school and she or just, just started high school, and there was another girl, they went for a 3K run, and this girl had done no training or anything like that, and she got to the end of the run and she was really tired and exhausted and her heart was beating a bit, so she asked to go to emergency because she'd never had experienced <laughs> that. Thing. And it was just people are becoming so disconnected with physical labour and exercise and things like that. And so it's, it's providing fun and enjoyable and, and beneficial opportunities for people to experience that um, such that it sort of it catches on. And there's also the satisfaction of knowing that you've you've done something. Mm. You know, the satisfaction of completing a job is provides the happiness that you just can't get if you're just pushing other bits of paper around or trading stock. It's just you're not producing anything. I think, as as uh, as humans in our society, we need to feel that we've produced something, and that that in enough is a sense of achievement and makes you know makes you feel good. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's really interesting that you say experience is, is the teacher. Um, I went to a school called School Without Walls and that was a democratically run school. Um, and I can't explain it to anyone except for other people who went there or have done something similar like maybe the Occupy things or something yeah. like that. And they go, oh, yeah, I know what you mean. And everyone else goes, what? Hey? And I'm sitting there going, oh, English doesn't have words for this. Yeah, so... I can understand what you're on about there completely. Now, shall we run through some of the principles? Some of the principles, observe and interact. I think we've probably covered that. We've mentioned that a few times. Catch and store energy. Um, What are your thoughts on catching and storing energy? We've covered it a little bit. I reckon Danny's house is a perfect example (laughs) of catching and storing energy. It's just (laughs) designing a system such that um, you can let nature do the work for you. In in the case of our house, it's putting in thermal mass floors, uh, orienting it to, to, to the north, providing glass such that we can get the sun during winter, but during summer the eaves stop the sun coming in. So that what we're doing is we're storing up the sun during the, the day and then that releases it from the, the slab overnight. So that's a really simple... And, and solar passive design's been around for, for hundreds of years, right? Um, it's just using that sort, of reason, that sort of thinking in 
all of our lives. So if you imagine um, in your garden, you'll, you might have a brick wall um, that faces west. So you might, and it's going to absorb a lot of heat during the day. So you might put some frost intolerant um, plants there such that overnight when the frost comes in, that wall is radiating heat out and, and keeping that warm. Or you might have your chook house backing onto that such that your chooks are actually getting the benefit of that heat overnight during winter but then you might shade that wall during summer so that the the chooks don't overheat so it's again it's part of the whole design process um, to, to store energy um, other simple ones is if you can catch water and store it up high and then just gravity feed down to where you want to use it again um, it's a smart use of nature. Um, in my case, I've got a fairly flat property, which kills me because I want to be able to, during the su during summer when I've got lots of energy, I'm, I'm totally off grid and I've got all of this energy and my batteries are full by 11 o'clock in the morning and my panels stop producing energy. And it, I just look at that as a, a wasted opportunity. Now, if I could pump water up high and then not have to run a pump to actually use that water, then that's just another example of using energy as it comes in, storing it, such you then don't have to work later on or use energy later on. Mm, need an electric vehicle or an air-compressed vehicle or something? Yeah. I was, I was cooking up the idea of... Um, using the excess energy to split water into hydrogen and then having a hydrogen-powered vehicle, but my research has told me that that's probably a little bit ways off. <laughs> yeah, and what could go wrong with that anyway? <laughs> uh, exactly. I'm sure the council would be happy for me to have a, uh, a hydrogen refinery in my backyard. Yeah, they'd love it. They'd certainly love it. So energy is, is, is probably the most important thing that permaculture looks at in my books. Um, yeah. What's the importance of energy, I guess... Is, is anyone familiar with peak oil? Yes. Yeah, can you just explain that for us? Just briefly, just the yeah, concept. All right. Yeah, so yeah. the idea, it, it came back, it partly was um, inspired by the, uh, the, sh the oil shock in the early 70s when, everyone, when prices went through the roof with a supply crisis. Um, but people suddenly realised that on a finite planet, obviously at some point you're going to run out of a resource because the planet is not infinite. Now, I know that this seems like obvious stuff, but there are actually still people today who believe that oil supplies are infinite. Well, they are <laughs> over the long period. If you think about it, it's the ability of that resource to replenish itself. So if you have a resource that can be replenished in the same time frame that you consume it, then it is renewable. That's but right. the problem is that our oil, <laughs> our oil takes um, eons it's to actually million, reduce. It's quite a billion years yes. to be reduced. That's right, yes. It's oh, not a human renewable. time frame. Maybe we should subsidise it under the renewable. <laughs> that sounds like a great idea. I'm feeling cynicism coming into the room. Um, <laughs> so, um, yeah, so the issue there is that we have actually passed peak conventional oil, um, which is the easy to extract oil. However, due to increased and rather unpleasant um, earth shattering techniques, we are able to extract oil from, uh, they're called tight oil and shale oil reserves, which um, require enormous amounts of machinery. Um, to extract oil out, so tiny quantities of oil by mechanically fracturing rock and all sorts of other things. Now, um, a particularly egregious example is up in uh, Canada in the Alberta tar sands where I actually have a relative working. And uh, <laughs> it's, uh, um, my, I won't name any names, but let's just say that there, there is, there's a point at which it becomes uneconomical to extract oil. And we're getting to that point. So in some of those Alberta um, 
um, operations, they're av- I think they're down to right. At the global average is it takes one barrel of oil to extract 15 barrels of oil. Now, when oil was first discovered way back several 150 years ago, whenever, it was about 100 barrels of oil that you would get for every barrel of oil of effort that you put in. So as you can see, things are getting tighter. We're having to spend more energy to get the energy out of the ground. Up in Alberta, we're looking at a ratio and one of the, of the fields was um, three to one. Um, so for every barrel of oil you use, you only get three barrels back. And one of them was one barrel of oil to 1.5 barrels of yield. And I don't understand how that's economic for them. I think that there are subsidies happening. All the more reason to subsidise, I'd say. <laughs> <laughs> so... Um, Permaculture developed at that point. Uh, so David and Bill were working at the point where there was the, the big oil shock and they were like, oh my goodness, how do we live well in a resource-constrained world where we're not necessarily going to continue to have a massive fossil fuel subsidy for our current lifestyles? So um, when we eventually run out of oil, now with these new techniques, yes, we can keep going for quite a lot longer than people had previously thought. There is a massive environmental cost to the kind of operations that are going on at the moment. And it's not just a global warming cost, but that is one of the major ones, because the more you fracture rock, the more methane you know, is released. You have a, a lot of other things, but you, you know, you're laying waste to a large area. And, and yeah. destroying the aquifers. and There's a whole range yeah. of problems with it. So, you know, there, there are a lot of activists around the world um, who are very concerned about those sort of things. Um, but nonetheless, what we need to do is look at ways to reduce our reliance on finite resources and ultimately not need to use them at all. So another of the permaculture principles is use and value renewable resources. How could we do things um, with just 100% renewable energy? Um, one of the things, though, I think that is a useful tool in permaculture is that we tend to think whole systems-wise. So um, we're looking also at the embodied energy in producing products that might make us um, and enable us to um, go 100% renewable down the track. And I think that there tends to be a thinking in public policy, which is, oh, this is a silver bullet, it's batteries or it's solar panels. We have to be aware also that if we're going to change to technologies that have apparently a lighter footprint on the planet we do need to be careful that we know what the embodied energy is in those products and also what rare earth products are in those uh, in the what rare earth materials are in the products that we're getting in um there is a whole ecological footprint to consider i think you know solar panels have a very short energy payback they are fine batteries we need to be a little bit more careful of that yes i think they're a great technology but lithium is (laughs) you know has to be mined and if we're talking about using batteries we need to as a society have put in place and plan for effective recycling so that we've got full closed loop systems of those batteries and that we're fully aware of the safety implications of batteries and make sure that you know we are able to manage those as well because batteries you know Mm. have a small risk of explosion as we know and you want to make sure that um if anything happens that we know how to contain those risks so it's a whole system it's a whole community-wide i've gone all over the place again sorry (laughs) energy's everywhere it is i I was going to talk about the the energy coming from the sun it obviously it feeds the plants and that's also another place of where we can catch and store the energy that that we're having so you know the plants are photosynthesizing they're growing and they're storing that sunlight that they've converted into carbon in their in their structures and when we're 
grow, you know, and part of that is we eat plants and we eat the fruits of plants. And so in terms of capturing the energy, we also need to capture the food and store that as well. So the, the Canberra Urban Homesteading Group is very much about catching and storing that produce that comes out of your food. I mean, Canberra can produce food year round, but there's, you know, there's a big amount of it that gets produced in autumn and late summer. And so people are, are out there at this time of the year, you know, can, you know, bottling their fruit and preserving that so that, you know, come winter time, you can enjoy peach crumble. <laughs> and again, preserving it in a shelf-stable manner such that you're not having to refrigerate or freeze it if you can. So it's thinking about those design systems um, such, such that you're not creating a dependence on input, input energy. Yeah. Yes, sounds very wise. Now, ob obtain a yield. What's a yield? I mean, the typical yield, I guess, that we would think of is a wage, a payment for whatever you do, putting in your, the time of your life and your energy. What other, why, why is a yield in here? What are they, what are they talking about? A yield is really just a har is it's it's a harvest. It's it's a quantity that you get. I mean, you you might get a, a yield in terms of a pay packet, but you can also go out into your garden and and pick yourself a you know a, a whole lot of spinach, and that's also going to be a yield. It's something that you've harvested and collected. Um, it, you know, people might may, may you know, go out and pick up all those thing all those hard wastes that get on left on the side of the road. You know, that's your yield. It's what you're collecting. Yeah, satisfaction as well. One of the things I find, um, I was thinking about this, whenever you establish a new garden, you have successes and failures. And so um, we have had, you know, a mix. We've had some amazing successes and we've also had some amazing um, moments where I'd have to say that the local possum and rat have yielded a great deal more than we have. <laughs> um, but... What that made me realise, I was thinking about this more holistically, is that the kind of yield we are talking about is much broader. Um, it's important. Knowledge is a yield. Um, experience is a yield. Satisfaction is a yield. Health is a yield. And mental health is a yield. Fitness is a yield. So there's a whole range of things. When you're planning to make a yield or produce a yield from your endeavours, Think more holistically about the whole thing and um, see it, it, it's, it's quite a useful exercise actually to think, okay, if I do X, what can I really yield from this? So even if X goes completely pear-shaped, <laughs> whatever it is that I'm doing, um, I might have yielded a great deal of knowledge at the same time. Was that a good thing for me to learn? Did I grow through that experience? All of those things are useful as well. So I yeah. suppose, yeah, we want to be holistic when we talk about a yield. And the thing is that a failure of a crop is is not a waste, right? If you if you don't learn anything from it, then it probably is a waste of effort. But if you learn something from it for next time, then that's at least something that you've taken away. And and I just want to pick up on the the concept of if you if your tomatoes didn't succeed this year, then being in a community where you're working together, it might be sort of coming back to this share of surplus. Yours didn't succeed, but somebody else's did. You then share um, some of that surplus so that everybody gets some rather than 
somebody having a lot and, and Kelly having no tomatoes, Absolutely. for example. That's yeah. right. And I had a lot. We yeah. had an enormous number of spaghetti squash. So yeah. I would swap my spaghetti squash for some tomatoes. Yeah. And that's how it goes. Yeah. And that's how you then build community relations. And another yield you make is friendship. Mm. Mm, very good. Apply self-regulation and accept feedback. That sounds a bit technical. What's, what's going on with this? <laughs> do you want to do that one? Or? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is probably the most technical one. It's about feedback in systems. So systems thinking is um, underpins the design work of um, permaculture. So it developed along the same, uh, around the same time as um, realising that in looking at ecology, we're looking at ecosystems rather than single species. We're, as, as a group of people love to think about things in isolation, but of course it's important to look at things as a whole system. So anyway, back to um, accepting feedback um, and applying self-regulation. The holy grail in permaculture is a self-regulating system. That is, um, you create all sorts of fun little feedback loops when you start to regenerate land. You're actually creating what's something that's called a reinforcing or positive feedback loop. You can have bad outcome ones, you can have good outcome ones, but what you're trying to do is build fertility back into your system. So that's actually an unstable system because it's changing all the time. It might be that you're building biomass really quickly and increasing putting in a lot of nitrogen uh, fixing species which add fertility into the soil relatively quickly but in ecological succession in nature those species give way to slower growing climax species what this means is that when you're looking at a system the system has to over time self-regulate and start to stabilise so that the energy inputs in that system and the outputs are balanced. Um, one of the things that David Holmgren is particularly keen on exploring is what is that stable, um, uh, what, what is a steady state ecological system where you can take a certain amount of yield out of that system and it will b replenish with solar energy, basically. What is that point at which you can sustainably harvest out of your system and that that system will manage itself and um, I think there are so many factors it depends on the amount of rainfall it depends on the uh, the soil to begin with there's a whole range of things that might mean that there's a different level of harvest you can take from a system and it will still maintain itself and be self-regulating um well, that would depend across the world um, and, on a whole and range across of different ecosystems if I bring yeah. it to one that I'm more familiar with in terms of grazing systems you you have to understand how your grasses are growing and and how much you can take how much you can yield and then looking at the feedback or, or, or analyzing the results of that over time so that you you can't always graze down to a certain amount depending on the rainfall depending on the time of season and the growing cycle of those plants and what the species you have throughout your pasture mm -hmm. um, so it is very much analysing and, and looking at that feedback loop so that you can correct it the next time round if you need to. Yeah. All right. Now, unfortunately, we've only got sort of 14 or 15 minutes to cover the rest of these points, so we're going to have to get a bit of a, a bit of a wriggle on. You'll be very disappointed about that. Um, uh, use and value renewable resources and services in a nutshell. Well, I think we've sort of covered kind of this, really, that haven't we? Yeah, I think we've covered that. Produce no waste. I think that one comes back to that design consideration of when you're, you're looking at an enterprise, look at the inputs and also look at the outputs. Um, and it might be that if you can't work out what to do with that output and it becomes a waste, because until it 
can't be used, it's actually not waste. But as soon as you realise you can't use it, it's a waste, it may be that you choose not to undertake that enterprise. Mm, or yep. buy that extra plastic thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I mean, we talked about the, cl- the closed loop system. In a closed loop system, there is no waste. As soon as that link is broken, that's when you start to get waste. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Uh, design from patterns to details. I like this one. It's huge. Do you want to talk to a Katie? You have one minute. <laughs> I think you're a lot more succinct than I am. Oh. So, so you want to look at the big. To, you want to start looking at the big, broad patterns to begin with. So, we'll take our back your backyard. You observe it for a year. You look at the pattern of sun and shadow in your backyard, and so then obviously, depending on that pattern is then where you would put the detail in terms of which plants can grow in the shade you might choose to move the greenhouse to a patch that's going to get more sun so looking at that as a as a pattern to begin with rather than just going diving straight into designing where you're going to put everything you know it's it's looking at that observing at the beginning and then you're saving yourself a lot of hassle if you put your places things in the wrong in the wrong place so mm. yeah. and then i think it also comes back to your thought patterns right how to even go about the process of design so starting at those high level consider the inputs consider the outputs consider the the all of those things and then get down to the detail yeah uh integrate rather than segregate polycultures yes. <laughs> they have the way to go so integrate if conventional agriculture one field one crop you get a pest you lose the whole crop um or a virus or a it you suddenly get a crazy hailstorm and all your pumpkins are squashed whatever it is if you integrate a lot of different um uh species or plants into your system then you are doing two things you're um making it more resilient so that if one prod one crop fails or you've got other things to eat the second thing though is that you're looking at the relationships between those elements um they're integrating with each other so how do you create a system where um for example you might have chickens and you've got an apple tree and you bring your chickens through around your apple tree at the right time of year to eat all the codling moth larvae which gives the chickens lots of protein but also means that your apples are going to be less likely to um, suffer from codling moth the following season so there's a range of things you can do where you're basically using other the ecological services from a whole bunch of species in conjunction with each other and that again of course it all gets back to energy it saves you effort (laughs) because (laughs) you don't have to go around and you know pick all the cuddling moth off or whatever you know which is pretty impossible to do but um there's a whole range of things um where you can um take uh, advantage of essentially the proclivity of all species to do their own form of gardening for you Hmm. so use small and slow solutions start at your back door don't bite off more than you can chew Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. we can all do a bit even if it's one bucket with some basil in it in summer at your back door start there and move out as you develop confidence go a bit further if you make a mistake it's only small don't go out there with a giant digger and dig up your whole backyard and then go, oops, put it in the wrong place because I forgot to look at where the sun was shining. Um, you know, there's a whole range of things. But yes, slow, small and slow. The idea is that you, it's human scale and it's manageable and you can uh, learn as you go 
and it's much safer. Use and value diversity. I, I think also in terms of diversity, we also need to talk about the, the, our cultural in terms of the different cultures that humans have. You know, we want to be able to, uh, you know, Australia is a multicultural c- country, meaning we have all sorts of different diverse cultures and people who have come to Australia and we've mixed them all together. You know, that's really what we're trying to do. You know, we do, you can do it on a plant scale like Kelly's talked about, but you also need to do it on a, on a person and a human scale as well. You know, and you need to value what those people from other cultures can, can bring. I mean, I think everyone agree that, that we like the tomatoes that came from the Italians and the pizza that we came from the Italians. And then as the next, an, another culture has joined Australia, we've all gotten into sushi. And then, you know, there'll be another, you know, we might move on to another different sort of cultural thing that people will bring and different, you know, um, ideas and ways of living and mix them all together and you get, get a much stronger community when you get ideas from all sorts of different people rather than just one particular sort of focus on one idea. Absolutely That's agree. Yeah. yeah, we also, um, diversity of thinking is particularly useful in problem solving as well. Um, and so businesses that have more diverse workforces are um, able to um, tend to perform better than those that are only think in a particular way and are reinforced with a particular culture. So um, that's something that's really important for thinking about resilience of communities. It's all about resilience yeah, and happiness. So what, what's resilience? <laughs> Being able to weather all sorts of things that might be coming in the future. Yeah, your ability as a garden, a person, a social group to actually respond and uh, withstand shocks of any sort and then actually be able to respond to those shocks. Absolutely. Yeah. And survive, but not just, I mean, resilience is a tricky word in that, you know, you can say, oh, yes, they're resilient, but they might be like, oh, pretty exhausted by the end yeah. of these things. It's about being resilient and being able to thrive under changing conditions. We know that some big things are coming. Climate change is going to change a lot. And we unfortunately as a world are not addressing climate change fast enough and there's a lot of natural feedback loops that have already um, basically started to happen and I think are irreversible so there will be a massive change in everything that we have to do in over the next 50 to 100 years and our job is to try and ride out that change as effectively and humanly and kindly and as even as happily as we can as societies all around the world and i suppose permaculture is one of those tools that will help us do that as well as we can and help us do it in a way that is kind and sharing and generous and generous yes mm, i like to think of it as community survivalism <laughs> yes. so how about use edges and value the marginal all right. Well, I kind of covered that a little bit in talking about marginalised people. Mm, um, how about but edges, though? There's something called the edge effect in permaculture. If you take two ecosystems, um, then at the borders between those two ecosystems, you tend to get a very much higher um, amount of diversity. So, for example, if you think about an ocean ecosystem and then, a so let's say, a forest and then in between this this zone, the mangroves, um, in a tropical ecosystem. Now, you've got an amazing diversity of species in that crossover edge between those two major ecosystems where species from both of those 
two major ecosystems on either side come into that middle area, but also that it has its own species that are unique to that area. So they're what we call ecological diversity hotspots. In your garden, in your farm, you try and you work out, first of all, you look to see if there are any of those broader pattern, big um, uh, um you know, it's very exciting if you're in one of those. I think they're called ecotones is their name, um, but they're really special places. And I was really lucky that I did a design for somebody once where they actually were living in an ecotone. And I was like, oh, that's pretty exciting. <laughs> you're going to have quite a lot of productivity in your garden. Um, but so you're looking at two things. You're taking advantage of whatever patterns there are around in terms of these broader ecosystems, but also at a much, much more micro level, if you increase the amount of edge in your garden, you actually increase productivity. It's yeah. peculiar, but you do. Yeah. So an example <laughs> sort of taking it over into the broad acre cropping world, they've done some, some tests where instead of having one big field of one particular species, what they've done is they've cropped different species in strips and the edge effect but where those two species of, of crop are growing next to each other they're actually more productive on the edge between the two than they are in the middle of each of those belts it's just it's quite remarkable yeah. yes it's how it's built really isn't it yes. yeah um and, and do you reckon edge sort of works socially too i mean we are a part of nature and i'm thinking of da vinci and copernicus and those guys they were way out on the edge you know they got their heads cut off and stuff like that and you know on the other side of things you know donald trump the edge can really push things push things <laughs> and, and and make a lot of stuff happen yeah yes yeah mm, creatively use and respond to change i'm sort of we kind of covered that yeah, a little bit, yeah, yes. Well, but yep. just remember that nothing stays the same. Even in your garden from year to year, things change so fast, especially if you're growing annual crops. Um, and what you find is that things succeed one year and then don't the next, and you learn as you go. Also, remember that if you create a garden, it's never going to look the same, even if it's mostly ornamentals. They grow. <laughs> and unless you go out there and prune them into some kind of topiary heaven, then you will find that they get bigger. And so every year it's different. And so being creative about that and understanding is partly appreciating that time really does happen and we can't control it, even though as a society I sometimes think that we do. <laughs> um, so, now, yeah. This, this all sounds really good, you know. Maybe we should hold some sort of event. Like, maybe we should put on a festival. But, is, is uh, a but that's a really great idea. Yeah. And, you know, there's one coming up on Sunday, <laughs> right. the 15th of April, and it's at Canberra City Farm, and we're going to be talking about um, a whole range of different things that people can do to make their lives more sustainable. I mean, we've got a huge lineup of speakers. I think there's about 25 of them across across the day. Um, we're going to be talking about preserving the harvest. We're going to talk about making beeswax wraps so you can re reduce your reliance on plastic bags. We'll be talking about feeding your chickens. Um, we're talking about the, the trees of Canberra and how they've shaped the environment. You can learn about backyard aquaponics and um, Costa Georgiatis is going to be there from Gardening Australia. He's going to do a, a, a talk through the, the Canberra City Farm demonstration gardens. There's also other tours around Canberra City Farm that you can do. Um, 
Yeah, there's also a social aspect as well where you can talk about you know, social permaculture and empowering local food resilience as well. Cool. So where's the Canberra City Farm? So Canberra City Farm is in Fishwick. It's on Dairy Road in Fishwick. Um, it's, it's right next to the Jerobomba wetlands. It's actually a lovely little piece of quiet heaven in amongst the middle of Canberra and in and amongst the urban atmosphere. It's a, yeah, it's a great yeah. location to have a, a permaculture festival well, at. Well, I don't know. A festival sounds really good. I reckon that's a great thing. But what about if we sort of, you know, because permaculture as part of its core thing educates people. There's courses going on all over the place. And, well, why don't we get together all those people who've done courses and really nut out some of the nitty gritty? I think that'd be a really good idea. Too. Oh, well, you know, what a fantastic segue into the permaculture convergence. Oh, you've already done it. Great. <laughs> we have indeed. And I hope we'll be seeing you there. Um, so um, basically the festival, in a sense, it's the public kickoff event ahead of the 14th Australasian Permaculture Convergence, which I'm helping to organise. And it is going to be held on the other side of Canberra at a very nice venue um, called Green Hills Conference Centre, which is just next to the Cotter Dam. Lovely views. And bless them, they're doing a lot to try and be as sustainable as possible as as an organisation and have lots of solar panels on their roofs. Um, We are going to have four days of super exciting um, presentations from permaculturists of all sorts of different colours and flavours. So from social permaculture through to um, broadacre ideas to um, ways. um, We've got, uh, I think, some people talking about initiatives in Timor-Leste. There's a whole range of things. And we've got some pretty exciting keynote speakers. Costa Georgiadis, of course, he's, bless him, he's coming to be our MC for the first few days. Um, David Holmgren, co-founder of Permaculture, will be um, talking in more detail about his book Retro Suburbia, which he's also launching at the festival, I should mention. Um, We've got Dr. Charles Massey, who is um, an author and farmer, talking about regenerative agriculture. We've got Tammy Jonas from the Australian Food Sovereignty Alliance, talking about the importance of connectivity for food Sorry, food system resilience. Um, we've got Mariam Issa, refugee women's advocate from Melbourne, talking about her initiative called Resilient Aspiring Women, um, which is about connecting different cultures together through the act of gardening. And my particular favourite is we've also got Bruce Pascoe, author of Dark Emu, talking about pre-colonial Aboriginal agriculture um, and basically dispelling the myth that Indigenous Australians were nomadic hunter-gatherers, which is um, basically a myth, and talking about the extremely interesting and sophisticated um, uh, agricultural systems they had in place before white people came to Australia. So they're just our keynote speakers. Then we've got, um, uh, it's basically four days of excitement and meeting lots of other people involved in sustainability um, initiatives. Um, but I just also want to stress, we've we've extended our tickets for one more day. So if you are listening right now and you think, oh, that sounds quite good, um, or you want to learn a bit more about permaculture, without doing a permaculture design course, this is probably a really good way to get our view of all the different ways that permaculture can be practiced and expressed. Um, And it's four days, it's only $450 for four days of conference and all of your food included in that. So um, 
if you want to do that, then hop online, just type in um, APC14 and you will find it on Google, Australian Permaculture Convergence 14, because it's the 14th. Um, and uh, yeah, they're only on sale until the end of tomorrow. So that's... Um, All right, get in quick. Get in quick if you want to do that. Um, well, Cal- Kelly Brennan, uh, Katie Bates and Danny O'Brien, thank you very, very much for coming in and joining us. Thank Thanks, you. Thanks. Thank you, Ed Scott. This interview was done in the studios of Community Radio 2XX 98.3 FM in Canberra, Australia. Community Radio relies on its listeners for funding. If you enjoyed this program and would like to hear more programs like it, please donate by going to 2XXFM.org.au, click Support 2XX, and then donate, subscribe, volunteer, or sponsor us. Thanks.